The reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 12 through chapter 13, verse 3. Oh, chapter 12, 25 through 13, 3. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Tanner and Ashley, for um, responding to the, God, the call of God in your life. I, I know that you didn't do that to be inspiring. You were just sharing your, um, your story and your testimony, but it, but it couldn't help but be inspiring. And I'm, just, um, I'm really thrilled that you guys are doing that and appreciate that. And glad that our community is stepping forward to help you as well. Um, good morning, Redemption. Glad, to, glad that you are here. Uh, if you're new with us, we're glad you're here. My name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, before we get to our text today, which is going to be Acts chapter 12, the last verse, uh, through uh, Acts 13, verse 12. We're actually going to go further than what Ben um, read, but that kind of gets us started, gets us the preview. Uh, but before we get there, I have something kind of kind of weird, kind of awkward to just mention to you, and, and um, there is a purpose for this, and I hope you can kind of help me out if you would. Um, <clears throat> Uh, two weeks ago, actually it'll be two weeks on, on Monday, uh, I, I finally moved from having an Android phone to having an iPhone. I made that, that switch. Um, and there's a lot of peripheral discussion about that, I understand that. But uh, it's been weird because um, I've, I've always been an Android guy, but I've had a Mac, uh, a laptop. And so nothing was ever synced up. And I really enjoy the Mac computers, and I work at Paradise Valley Community College as well, and they have Mac. Anyway, but I couldn't let go of my Droid. And the reason is because I just knew that the, the transition from Droid to iPhone would be desperately painful. And it was. And, um, and I knew that because even just when I would get an up, upgrade for the Droid after two years, going in and transferring stuff from the old Droid to the new Droid was a mess. And so I knew it couldn't be any better transferring it from Droid to iPhone. I would lose contacts and I would lose appointments and, and all of that. I mean, just, just a desperate mess. To the extent that uh, even when I was going Droid to Droid, I would stand outside of the Verizon store and do breathing exercises and pray before I went in there. And uh, so um, this time I knew I was getting, I, 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 was, I was done living under the oppression of my two daughters saying, when are you going to get an iPhone? And we want to FaceTime with you and all this stuff. So um, I, I went in uh, with, the, with the idea that I was going to transfer from Droid to iPhone. I actually went into the store three times before I finally had the courage to actually do it. I walked out the first two times. So that'll tell you what it's like. And, and it was. It was really hard. I lost 11 hours last uh, two weeks ago. I lost 11 hours that week, hours that I would normally spend on church stuff, just trying to get stuff figured out and, and, um, and fixed. Uh, one of the things that happened, as some of you know, is I lost a lot of my contacts in the transfer. And those of you who text me, like you normally do, and then got that awkward, weird, uh, I don't know who you are, could you please tell me who you are text. That's always a little bit awkward to do. So you knew, some of you know about that. But then the worst part really is in the last three weeks, I've missed three appointments because not everything transferred over on my calendar. And so I'm here to ask you, if you have an appointment with me going forward, 
not I don't want to hear again that I missed another one. But if, I, if you have one going forward, you might want to text me, email me, or just come up to me after service and say, hey, I just want to double check and make sure we're on for this appointment, especially if you're doing premarital. I've got a lot of premarital counseling um, appointments coming up, and I just want to make sure that we're all okay and, and, and set on that. Um, so that would be really helpful to just to check in with me and make sure that we're... Here's the other thing, though. If, if you're going to go, oh, I could use this as an, as an opportunity to get on his calendar really fast without him knowing it, God's going to get you if you do something like that. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, the last thing I'll say, here you go. I have no complaints against Motorola. They manufactured my Android. I have no complaints against Apple, the, the iPhone manufacturer. I have no complaints against Verizon. None of this is really their, none of this is really their fault. Uh, this is the work of Satan. I just want you to know that, okay? So it, 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 it's, a, it's a true manifestation of spiritual warfare. Enacted on a pastor who loves Jesus and is just trying to... Anyway, so... Let's, uh, so seriously, though, if, 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 if you uh, have an appointment with me, let me know, and let's make sure we get on that. The next three weeks, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be examining what is commonly known as the first missionary journey, and that's really the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, whom we've been calling Saul up until uh, today. Now, if, there's, if this is known as the first missionary journey, you know that there is going to be a second missionary journey and even a third missionary journey. This is essentially what the rest of the book of Acts is going to be about, is about Paul and his companions going around evangelizing and planting churches. And I finally get to break out the maps. I am a map guy. I love maps, okay? So I'm like Dora the Explorer. I, I, love, I love maps, and so you're going to have to endure the maps. And we found a pretty cool map that is very clear and easy to, to read. Um, originally, as you heard in Ben's reading, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Barnabas and Saul are sent out. And it says Barnabas and Saul, they lead out originally. But after today's passage, two things are going to be true, and you're going to see one of them in today's passage and one of them in the very first verse of next week's passage. Here are the things that are going to be different. Number one, we're no longer going to call Saul, Saul. He is, we're going to change to his name, Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Saul is Jewish, and he's Hebrew. But now we're going to finally start calling him Paul. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, even though he's Jewish. So he needs a, a, a Gentile, a Greek name. So we're going to start calling him Paul here. You'll see that transition in this uh, passage. And the second thing is that the author of, of um, the book of Acts, Luke, is going to change from saying Barnabas and Saul to Paul and his companions. So suddenly you're going to see this shift, and a lot of people will take note of that and, and kind of get a little bit nervous about that, because in the world, that means something significant. Oh, Barnabas isn't as special. Barnabas isn't as good. Barnabas isn't a good leader. What's wrong with Barnabas? And, and I want to talk a little bit about the differences between how um, the, the body of Christ sees giftedness and abilities and how the world sees it, and that's one of the distinctives that we have. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. The timing here, the chronological timing I would say, and there's a little bit of nuance here, but I would say that the, the missionary journey starts in A.D. 46 and ends in A.D. 47. It's 18 months long, um, and we're going to cover it in three weeks. Uh, and, and this is 14 years after Saul's Damascus Road experience where he's converted. 
You don't necessarily see that in the text, but in reconstructing all of the history and the extra-biblical commentary and, and whatnot, you're, we know that this is 14 years after Saul's conversion, and that becomes significant. We also begin to see here a wider mission for the church now. This, this missionary journey lasts 18 months, and there's a, a very specific purpose that they go out with, and that is to plant churches and to evangelize people, bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to them, and then to follow up and nurture those communities as well. This is the first time that this mission gets as broad and as defined as this. Up until now, what we've seen in the book of Acts is primarily when leaders are sent out from Jerusalem, and these guys get sent out from Antioch, actually, but when in the past, as we've watched, when leaders get sent out from Jerusalem, what they're being sent out to do is to confirm or affirm the evangelical work that's already been done in these other areas like Samaria. Uh, so this is the first time that we see the mission of the church on this broad of a scope. And verse 25 at the end of chapter 12 kind of sets the stage. Luke uses this as a summary and a transition into what happens next. He says, Paul and Barnabas, uh, I'm sorry, Barnabas and Saul returned from their trip from Jerusalem. If you remember a couple of weeks ago in chapter 11, uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus to get Saul. Tar uh, Paul, Saul had been up in Tarsus for 10, 11, 12 years, and he goes and gets him, brings him back to Antioch, and they lead there for about a year. During that time, there's a terrible famine down in Jerusalem, and the church down there is, becomes very under-resourced and needs some help. And so the church in Antioch starts to collect money and, and supplies and help for the church at Jerusalem. They give it to Barnabas and Saul, and they go down to Jerusalem and take them this relief help, and now they're back. And this sets the stage for what happens next in the church at, uh, uh, at Antioch. They also bring back with them John Mark. So we see him in, in Scripture referred to as both John and Mark, but it's, it, some people just know him as John Mark. They bring him back. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin, and so it's important to remember that for what happens later on. We're going we're gonna to keep kind of touching on this story of John Mark and then pulling away and then touching on it again. It becomes sort of a, I, I hate to use the word sideshow, it sounds um, almost uh, like, like denigrating in some ways, but it's kind of a side story to what happens in Mark, everything that, what happens in the book of Acts, everything that happens to John Mark. Um, John Mark goes with them on this first missionary journey, but bails out, we'll see next week, early. And later on, he becomes a source of a very sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, which actually ends up, they end up going their separate ways. And, and their kind of their friendship, or at least their partnership, comes to an end. And we actually need other parts of the New Testament to fully understand this whole story of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Uh, it, it's just an interesting uh, side story that you'll see more of and is revealed more and more throughout these weeks. Uh, the big idea for today's passage, however, is this. The church has human leaders, but always in submission to the Holy Spirit. The church does have human leaders, like myself or uh, Cody or Tyler, uh, but always, at least hopefully and in theory, always in submission to the Holy Spirit. That is very, very important. And you'll see that how the Holy Spirit is working clearly through everything that goes on here. So looking again at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, which Ben read. I want to reread them. We'll read these, unpack a little bit. We'll read uh, the other nine verses, unpack that some, and then we'll, we'll get to some takeaways for today. 
So Luke records this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Niger and Lucius are actually from Africa. We know historically that these guys made their way from Africa up to Antioch just to be a part of the church in Antioch. I think that's fascinating because God will call us from a myriad of different places in order to go and do his work. And, and there's an, a great example of people who are kind of open to that. And it just reminds me of, of um, kind of the, uh, the legacy of part of Redemption Church itself. Um, the oldest congregation in Redemption Church is our Gilbert congregation. 30 years ago, our Gilbert congregation was planted by Tom Schrader as East Valley Bible Church. And it, it became one of the two congregations that actually merged to become, uh, with Praxis to become Redemption Church. He plants this church uh, 30 years ago. The church begins to grow by the power of the Spirit, and, and, and God just fills Tom. He's a very good uh, communicator, still around today, sometimes even preaches here. Uh, what's interesting about the history of the Gilbert congregation is that when it was East Valley Bible Church, there were a number of families who lived in Tucson and drove every Sunday up to go to Gilbert for church. Think about that. Now, they weren't just visiting occasionally. They were driving up there every Sunday to go to church up there. There were also some families that were living in Prescott who were driving all the way down to Gilbert to go to church every Sunday. There was even, here you go, this is the most fascinating one, there was even one family who lived in Lake Havasu that was driving into Gilbert for obvious reasons. But anyway, they were driving into Gilbert every week to be able to go to church. Uh, we need to remember that we're all called in some manner or fashion. We're all gifted in some way by God. But sometimes we allow certain obstacles to just get in the way of that call. And, and one of the greatest obstacles that gets in the way of our call is convenience or inconvenience. And, and we need to be very, very careful of that. Now, those of you that live close to Redemption Arcadia, I'm not telling you to go to Redemption Flagstaff. I'm just saying that we need to be aware that when we're called, there may be obstacles. And then there's this Menaean. He's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. There's that name Herod again. There's Herods everywhere in the Bible, and they're not really good people. This is a different Herod than any Herod that we've seen before. This is Herod Antipas. And, and, and so we've, we've talked about Herod the Great. We talked about Herod Agrippa a few weeks ago, who was Herod the Great's grandson. This is another Herod. This is Herod's, Herod the Great's son. So he's kind of in the middle. Menaean actually grew up with Herod Antipas, this Herod. Now, let me ask you this. This is important to understand. Have, has the Herod family been friendly to the church or to the gospel or to Christians? Not at all. In fact, it's not just that they've been unfriendly. They've been downright aggressively hostile towards uh, the church. I, I think Luke points out this relationship, again, to help us understand that in the church, there is great irony and tension. In the gospel, there is great irony and tension. That, that you're going to end up in a place, in a church community, with people that 
you have different histories, and sometimes those histories are not really compatible, and yet in the gospel, we are unified. You, you have, uh, you're, you're unified through the gospel with people that you don't share political opinions or even opinions about restaurants or food or athletic teams or whatever it is that gets you going and gets you passionate and gets you upset, you're going to be mixed in with people who don't share your opinion on things. That, that are, it's going to be, here you go, Christianity is not necessarily a clean business. The number of people who want to come to the gospel in order to have all the tension in their life eliminated is mind-boggling when the gospel actually calls us very specifically to tension. The church is a messy business. Christianity is a messy business. The gospel is messy, and the sooner we understand that, embrace it, and learn how to live in that tension, the better it's going to be for all of us. Jesus says things like, love your enemies. Love your enemies. He says things like, be in the world and not of the world. There is, there is just no way that we can expect a faith, a worldview, and a life that is free of irony and tension when we come to the gospel. And I think that's why Luke includes that. And then they laid hands on them. They commissioned them to go out. Um, that's a common thing that Christians do. It's a, it's a symbol of the spirit flowing between the members of the body. And, and you saw up here when Tanner and Ashley were up here, you saw Ben when he prayed for them, he, he laid hands on them. And so then we get to these next nine verses. And Luke continues and he writes, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, John Mark, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, uh, literally the son of Jesus or the son of Yeshua. No relation at all to the Messiah. Okay? He was with the proconsul, uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, Bar-Jesus, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So just some background stuff here. The island of Cyprus has been described geographically as uh, the large island that is in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean uh, Sea. And so we need a couple things that are helpful to remember. First of all, Barnabas is from Cyprus originally. He was born and raised in Cyprus. He's familiar with Cyprus. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they went there. He knew how to lead the gang through uh, this island. And what they did was Antioch is actually 16 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. So the major port for Antioch was Seleucia. And so they went 16 miles down to Seleucia. They launched from there. They sailed to uh, the easternmost port of Cyprus, which is Salamis, which if you're like me and you enjoy salt-cured meats, that's your favorite city in the New Testament. 
And, and they, they got there, and we don't have a lot of detail. We're just told they went into the synagogues, they preached, and then they moved very quickly, not necessarily chronologically, but in the text, moved very quickly across the island, another 90 miles to this place called Paphos, where they have this encounter. So here's the map. They start up there. There's Jerusalem down there in the south. They start up there in Antioch, about 140 miles north of, 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 of Jerusalem, maybe 180 uh, they, they go down to Seleucia, Salamis, and Paphos, and that's where we are now. That'll be the rest of the first missionary journey, but right now where we are is right smack dab in the middle of that map. That's where all of this happens. And they encounter this guy, Bar-Jesus, son of Yeshua. Jesus was a very common name in the first century uh, for Jewish men, okay? So he was Jewish, but also he was a magician, which if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that's absolutely verboten. God speaks at length in the Old Testament about sorcery and witchcraft and magic being, being a, a sin, a, a tragic sin. And so it should go without saying that he is a false prophet. That's why Luke includes that. If he was a Gentile, he wouldn't have necessarily said he was a false prophet, but he would have still described him as a magician. The Old Testament is replete with God's disapproval of sorcery and magic. But magicians were very common in that day. Uh, not for entertainment, necessarily, like today. There were no HBO specials. That wasn't the primary reason they were magicians. But mostly, it was just a way to make money and promote self. To make money and promote self. Some were thought to have demonic powers. And the magic was practiced by both pagan and Jewish people, which, of course, God was not down with Jewish people practicing uh, magic. And, and here are the, the purposes and the goals of a magician in their day. First of all, they would claim that they could heal and physically bless people. So one of the things that they would have a lot of people coming to them for would be uh, uh, if a woman was unable to have children, they would go to a magician and he would do an incantation, maybe give her some magic potions and hope that maybe she could start to have um, babies. Here's another side of, of that coin, though, of what magicians would do in, in their time. Uh, they were also sought out by people specifically to, they would pay the magician, and the magician would then uh, either cast a curse or try to physically harm uh, another person anonymously and without confrontation. So obviously this is like an early version of the internet. Okay, so trolling, all right? That's essentially what, they're, what, what they're, they were for. Here you go. I point that out to let you know that human nature has not changed in thousands and thousands of years. We, we are essentially, other than technology, the same as we were 2,000, 4,000 years ago. Uh, they would also claim that they could foretell the future. So if you wanted to have your, you know, a vision of your future, you'd go and talk to them. And they had magic books. They, they carried around books on magic that would, they would consult. They actually had schools for magicians, so kind of like seminary for magicians. They had specific training. They had potions. They had incantations. And they had magical objects like votives and things like that. And they would carry all of this stuff uh, around with them. But, but, in all of it, the main point of the magician is self-promotion, self-glorification, and profiteering. And the name Elymas, so Luke says he was named Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, but he also had another name that people called him, Elymas. Elymas, that word literally means sorcerer, or one who practices sorcery. He had cozied up to the proconsul, 
The proconsul is the highest ranking government official in the island of Cyprus. Sergius Paulus was the governor of the entire island of Cyprus. He was a powerful, uh, wealthy man. And in fact, uh, there are archaeological digs today from the first century on Cyprus, a number of them that have inscriptions to Sergius Paulus. So he was a real person, uh, obviously, in the first century. But it's just always interesting when, when modern archaeological digs uh, confirm things like that. And what's going on here is that uh, Elymas is threatened by the gospel because he knows that if Sergius Paulus turns his attention to Jesus, he's not going to need the magic anymore. And without the magic, that means that Elymas doesn't have the influence or access to the power of the proconsul, and he loses the ability to send him an invoice and collect on his billings from the proconsul, who's obviously uh, very, very wealthy. And so that becomes a problem. Bar-Jesus' economic uh, sustainability is threatened when the Christian missionaries come. And again, no detail in the Bible is wasted. Luke mentions that Sergius Paulus is intelligent, so you have to say, well, why would he mention that? I think, uh, I think the reason he mentions that is to help us understand that even intelligent people can be misled and fooled. Even intelligent people can be misled and fooled by whatever it is. No matter how smart we are, no matter how intelligent we are, no matter how wise we are, all of us have fallen for something. And so it's just reminding us of that. And then look how Paul goes right at this guy, this magician. I want to reread for you verses 9 and 10, because this, I think, is very important. But Saul, who was also called Paul, here you go, filled with the Holy Spirit. So this doesn't wasn't Paul getting angry of his own accord. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with God, looked intently at Elymas and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you are full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Part of this, I think, is possibly due to the fact that Bar-Jesus is Jewish, Paul is Jewish, and he's speaking to him, one Jew to another, specifically to say, even if you're just going by the Old Testament, you're not practicing God, God's ways. But also, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, even in uh, his understanding of of the, the new covenant with Jesus, he's going right at him and saying, you can't do this anymore. And he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness. How is that for a lovey-dovey community? Do you find yourself in your small groups, is this how you speak to each other in your small groups? You sit down, you have your meal, and, and then you break out the you son of the devil language. I mean, that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Now, listen, I, I want to make, make sure you're very clear on this, okay? I'm not advocating that we speak to each other like this all the time. Uh, I just wonder if sometimes we don't, we're not willing to do it enough or at all. It, it seems like, in, and I've read essays about this as well, other people are troubled by this as well, it seems like in our current uh, context, we have leaned so far the other way that, that, that we've gotten to a point where inside the church it's become the unforgivable sin to dare to offend anybody. That, that to go to somebody who is in obvious sin and who is obviously thinking foolishly instead of wisely, to go to them and lovingly say, looky here, you're on a very destructive path. 
We know where this is going to end. I've seen this movie before. You need to get off this path and get, off this, get, get back on this path. That is seen by a great many people in the church today as what? Not loving, but judgmental. Who are you to judge me? You don't love me. True love would just let me alone and let me be who I'm supposed to be. This is the way God's made me, and I'm just going to be this. You don't really love me, and that's just not true. We need to understand that there are times filled with the Holy Spirit, with love and gentleness, we need to go and speak truth to people. There, here you go. Let me just say it this way. There is no way that genuine, true love allows somebody else to destroy themselves. That's not genuine love. Uh, last week when we talked about, we took a week off from Acts and did the parable of the shrewd manager, and we talked about um, uh, be as shrewd as serpents, but be as innocent as a dove, and how as Christians we, we always tend to lean over here towards the innocence at the expense of shrewdness. Understand that many times we lean so far into innocence that we become sinful in our innocence when we refuse to look at an injustice and call it out for what it is, when we refuse to look at somebody who's about to drive their car off a cliff thinking that it's a lot of fun and we don't say something to them. That is not loving. Love is not undermined by speaking the truth. Uh, love is not undermined by also uh, going to somebody who's, who's just behaving foolishly and, and correcting that. But the gospel calls us to correction with love and gentleness, but it calls us to call out foolishness. Listen to what Paul writes uh, to Timothy several years later in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, to be equipped, to be used by God, we need not just training in righteousness, not just good teaching, but we also need to be reproofed, we need to be confronted in our sin, and we need to be corrected. Those are equal parts of what it means to live in the faith, and we shouldn't run away from that. Um, in, in Henry Cloud's, uh, he's a, P, a couple of PhDs, I think, but he's got a, a, a book called um, Changes That Heal. Uh, he talks about this. He says, you know, in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that Jesus is filled with grace and truth, filled with grace and truth. And, and so often we think of that mathematically and go, okay, so Jesus is 50% grace and 50% truth. And when he's applying grace, he's probably not applying truth. And when he's applying truth, he's really not applying grace. And that's not at all what the gospel is saying. The gospel is saying, throw out your math, understand that he is 100% grace and 100% true, and when he's speaking the truth, he's doing it in grace, and when he's extending grace, he's also uh, packing in truth with it, and, and we need to follow him in that same way, that we can't tend towards one or the other ends of this spectrum. We need to, here you go, a lot of people treat grace and truth as if they're opposites and that they're exclusionary, and that's just not the gospel. They are together in the gospel. Um, grace is all about the relationship. Truth is about reality, and we need them both. We need guidelines. We need, we need reality, but we also need relationship and love and grace and mercy. Uh, truth, here you go, truth penetrates. It goes into us deep, and as a result, it disrupts us. 
Truth is that thing that we're on this wide path that everybody else is on. Truth is the thing that comes along and penetrates our hearts and says, that looks right, but it's not right. And you're leading, you are being led to your destruction. Go over here where there's very few people. It looks wrong, but that's actually the right path. That will penetrate and disrupt us, but it will also affirm for us what genuine truth is. It's also very affirming because God has placed himself in our hearts and we do know the truth and it will help us affirm it when it comes to us but but grace also we need that too because grace just gives and gives and gives and grace also protects us grace protects our hearts through the love of God the grace of God the mercy of God the forgiveness of God and the biggest thing about grace grace reminds us of our position with God That when we stand before God, no matter when it is, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our positionality with God in Christ is that he does not even have an ounce of condemnation for us. And that is good news. Uh, Cloud talks about how people who are only raised or involved in community and relationships where it's only truth those people become riddled with guilt and shame and live their entire lives riddled with guilt and shame. Is that how we want to live? I hope not. But there are many of us that do because all we've ever been exposed to is the truth and no grace. But the other side of that coin are the people who have only lived in an environment of grace and what's happened to them is that they keep going down the path of self-destruction and they're never corrected, there's no guidelines, there's no reality for them. We need to have both of those. We need to remember, here you go, we need to remember, in the New Testament church, we often talk about the law of God, the Mosaic law, as if it's something that was dirty and wrong and not good enough for who Jesus is. That's just not true. God gave the law because he loves us. And because we are finite, we're not infinite like him, because we are finite, we need limits and guidelines. Human beings need limits and guidelines because we're sinful, because we're fallen, and because we're finite in this world. And so we need to remember that God gives the law out of love. Grace and and truth uh, have to be married together for them to be effective at all. And then... Paul, at the end there, it sounds like Paul is calling down judgment on Elymas, but he's really not. And and a lot of people misunderstand this, and I just hope I can make this clear. Paul is not calling down judgment. He's merely announcing that it's going to happen. It's like when you go to somebody and you say, if you continue down this path, this is the destruction that you will reap from what you are currently sowing, okay? You're not the one causing that destruction. You're merely announcing that it is coming. And we need to remember that. That's what Paul is doing. In other words, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads and teaches through something that seems really negative. Uh, Luke, the pastor of our Gateway congregation, calls this a negative miracle. The Holy Spirit does positive miracles, but he also does some negative miracles. And we've seen some of them in the book of Acts. And both of them are for the purpose of pointing us to who Christ is. Uh, uh, Elymas lost his physical sight for a time. He wasn't permanently blinded, but he lost it for a time. And it was merely a symbol of his spiritual blindness, his inability to see who Jesus was. And there is some irony here. Remember, in in chapter 9, Paul was blinded 
on his way to Damascus. Jesus came down, knocked him off his ride, blinded him temporarily, and that was what led to Paul's salvation. The irony here is that Elymas gets blinded, and that leads to Sergius's salvation. We, Elymas is gone at this point. He is not saved, but his blindness was instrumental in helping Sergius to come to the gospel. So this is the Holy Spirit doing God's will. Humans are leading and preaching, but in ultimate submission to the Holy Spirit. That's very important to understand. So I see a number of takeaways from this. I want to I talk about three of them, and this is how we'll wrap up. So three things to be thinking about, praying about, and consider this week from this passage. First of all, this whole idea of the positionality of Barnabas and Saul, and then Paul and his companions, and what happened to Barnabas. Who's best? Who's, is Paul best? Is Barnabas the most important? How do we determine that? See, that's kind of worldly thinking, because the world often sees something like this as a zero-sum game. There has to be a winner, and there has to be a loser, but God does not see it this way at all. God sees this as how the body of Christ coalesces together through our different giftedness. Here you go. Uh, if you want to say it this way, by being wired differently. By being wired differently. God wires each one of us differently. It's how we coalesce together as a body and we are better together. One plus one equals three is essentially what's happening here. It's, it's not who important who is first. Paul and Barnabas had different gifts. And both of them were using their different gifts. There's different ways to participate in the life of the church. There's different ways to participate in being discipled or discipling others. But one thing is consistent. If you're a part of the church, if you are in Christ, you are going to participate in the body of Jesus Christ. We are members of one body and Jesus is the head. For those of you that are note takers, write down 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Go and read it later. Paul unpacks this whole idea of we're all different members, but one body, and the head is Jesus Christ. And that although we are filled with diversity, diversity of gifts, diversity of opinions, we are united by the head, which is in Christ. And he uses the body as his metaphor. I have different members of my body. I've got feet, I've got hands, I've got eyes, I've got ears, I've got a nose, I've got, an, I've got two elbows, thankfully, for the elbows, and, and all of those are different members with different functions, but they all have to be a part of the body. One of the things, he talks about two sides of this coin. One of the things he talks about is the fact that you cannot be in isolation. He says, what happens if you're a foot and you're just a foot alone? Well, you're really good at walking places, but you can't see. You're going to constantly stub your toe. You can't hear anything. You can't eat anything. The foot needs the other members to be a part of a body. What happens if the body was just an eye? Where would the sense of hearing or feeling be? That's a problem. And so we need to remember that we're a member, a very important member of a body. But also he says it this way. He says those who think they have the most important gifts, let's say an eye, an eye can't say the ear, I can see everything, so I really don't need you. No, you need to be able to hear, too. If you have this gift, it doesn't give you the right to tell other people with different gifts that they're not important. So he talks about that relationship as well. He also talks about how if you have one gift, 
You can't then go and tell everybody else, you also have to have my gift. If you don't have my gift, you're not a real Christian and try to convert the church into having only one gift. The church can't be one member. Members cannot exist in isolation. They must exist in community with each other in order to become a body. And then he talks about this. He says, you know, some people have the greater gifts, whatever those are. Maybe it's the gift to be up on, I don't know, maybe up on the platform where everybody gets to see you. And other people have lesser gifts, but he says, but God honors the lesser gifts above the bigger gifts because they're just as important, but we don't necessarily treat them that way. The the, the people who do things like serving behind the scenes in children's ministry or stacking chairs or whatever that is, If that doesn't happen, we don't have church. It's just as important. We need to remember that. So here's what happens when it comes to gifts. You need to figure out how God has wired you, how God has gifted you. And and one other thing, real quick, this is really important. It's not that you become a Christian and boom, suddenly you have superhuman powers in some area you never had before. That might happen. You might, he might just gift you suddenly in some fantastic way. That might happen, but very often what happens is the way you've already been wired by God, the gifts and talents that you already have, those now are being used by the power of the Holy Spirit in submission to him and used for the benefit of the church. And so figure out what your gift is or gifts, because many people have more than one, and then we celebrate with you what those gifts are And you never lord your gift over anybody else. So we lift you up, we we exalt you, we we celebrate with you that you're good at something, but you never come around and say, you know what, I'm doing this ministry, and you're not a real Christian unless you start doing this ministry like me. That's not the church, and that's not biblical. So figure out what it is, celebrate it, and then don't lord it over anybody. And then specifically, whatever your giftedness is, You are then filled by the Holy Spirit and called by God to go into your family, go into your communities, go into your friends, go into your neighbors, go into your work, go into your church, go into your school, and express and use those gifts for the benefits and service of other people. Very, very important. And that's what was happening with Paul and Barnabas here. Here's the second thing. I just want to mention this again. After... 14 years, Paul finally goes out on his first missionary journey. I don't think we talk about this enough. I think this is very important because this shows patience and wisdom. 14 years after Paul's converted, even Paul needed time. Uh, The number of people that come into the church and want to just go and just want to be sent right now, 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 now. And you're kind of going, ah you might need a little bit of time first. You might need some seasoning. You need some discipleship. You need some training. You need to just sit in it for a while. Uh, Many people want to be the Apostle Paul without Paul spending 10 years in Tarsus behind the scenes, just getting to know who Jesus is. Many people want to be Paul in Athens, We read Acts chapter 17, and it's like, I want to be Paul in Athens. We need to understand, we don't have the Paul in Athens without the Paul in Tarsus. We need that time. We need time to develop perseverance 
and patience. And that's what happens in what Cody calls faithfulness over time. Faithfulness over time. Paul was faithful over time. We need to remember that. But also of great importance, number three, is what happened in this missionary journey, this is so important, was not at the initiation of humans, but was at the initiation of the Holy Spirit. So many of us have this idea that we initiate something and then we got to figure out how to get God to respond to it, and we've got it backwards. God initiates, the Holy Spirit initiates, Jesus initiates, and then we respond to that. And the Holy Spirit fills us and gives us the power to be able to do that. He initiates, we respond. I I just want you to see this. Notice in Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch never formed a committee, and they never had a strategy session. They were filled and directed by the Holy Spirit. They prayed and they fasted. Now, here you go. I am not against planning and meeting and strategizing and thinking. I'm not against those things. But I think in the 21st century, we've become a little bit too humanist for our own good. In the 21st century, it just seems to me, and I think the evidence is clear, that we spend way more time planning than praying, and that's terrible. We need to spend more time praying than planning because it is by the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit that we're going to be able to do this work. And I think that when we avoid talking about submitting ourselves to and being filled by the Holy Spirit, we're just going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit less. And when we are willing to press into the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a blessing there. And and here you go. This is not me proclaiming a works-related filling of the Holy Spirit. That's not it. I'm just saying the Holy Spirit is there. We're Christians. He's going to fill us. We might as well press into that. Why not? Let's be open to that. Let's set our egos and our intelligence aside and press into his intelligence, his wisdom, his knowledge. And And I think things will will happen in dramatic ways. The great theologian James Houston gets this correct. Here's what he writes. What we face in the world today is the insistence that identity is self-achieved. But as Christians, we believe, and Scripture plainly teaches, that our identity is given to us, not achieved. We obviously had nothing to do with causing our own physical birth, and the same is true of our spiritual birth. We receive it, not achieve it. Our identity is in Jesus crucified and risen and then filled with the Holy Spirit. Our power is made perfect in weakness, as Paul says. And when we submit to that reality, then God works in amazing ways. The self-achieved identity so many of us seek and work so hard for is fragile because we are the ones that must sustain it. The Christian is found in Christ, and that's where our freedom comes. See, this always, 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 always comes back to the cross, the resurrection, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Everything in the life of faith, the life of the gospel, the life of the church, comes back to Jesus crucified, Jesus raised to life, sitting at the right hand of God, and God fills us with his Holy Spirit. That's what it all comes back to. And so we must put on Christ always. That's the message of the gospel, and it's also the joy of the gospel. So let's pray together and we will go into our time of reflection and response. Lord God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for 
the fact that you'll work in any way necessary to help us to be able to see who you are and to help us be filled with your spirit. God, I pray that we would, that we would press into the fact that we are, we are not condemned standing in Christ. And in fact, we are filled by the power of your Holy Spirit to live the life that you call us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.